course we should be supporting human rights. Of course we should be supporting democracy. But, you know, we have real national security interests associated with Iran, especially with its pursuit of its nuclear weapons and also with its behavior across the Middle East. And so um, we need to sort of base our strategies and policies first and foremost uh, on those, not on a, a hope for some kind of reform that may or may not happen. Iran is a major force in world affairs. Since Ayatollah Khomeini and the clerical class established a theocratic regime in 1979, the Islamic Republic has behaved in opposition to U.S. incursions in its backyard and plays a central role in conversations on regional stability and global security. With the Ayatollah's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its regional proxy groups, Iran's clerics frequently use their sprawling network to implement foreign policy goals and sow instability in its neighbors. Now, with a new U.S. president, a revived nuclear program, growing domestic opposition to the clerical regime, and a U.S.-led coalescing of nations against Iran, the situation between Iran and the United States has rarely been more tense. Joining us today is Elon Goldenberg, a senior fellow and director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. He is a foreign policy and defense expert with extensive government experience covering Iran's nuclear program and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Prior to CNAS, Mr. Goldenberg served as the Chief of Staff to the Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations at the U.S. Department of State. In that position, he played a critical role supporting former Secretary John Kerry's initiative to conduct permanent status peace negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians. Enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Welcome, Alon. Hi. It's a pleasure meeting you today. Great to be here. Uh, we would like to begin by contextualizing a little bit about our conversation. Would you like to provide our listeners with a brief history of the U.S.-Iran relationship? And where do you think all this animosity comes from? Well, look, I mean, there is a long history of animosity and, and tensions and distrust in the U.S.-Iran relationship. Uh, I mean, you can go back to 1979, which really is the, the core of it, at least on the American side, right? The Islamic Revolution uh, and then the takeover of the U.S. embassy. I mean, before 1979, the U.S. and Iran had actually had a very close relationship. Um, and so with the Shah, right, who was a previous ruler before, uh, you know, his government was toppled by uh, the Islamic Revolution. Um, so from the American perspective, things go back to 1979, and it's kind of this defining feature of a whole year where every day this crisis uh, and the American hostages that were, were being held um, in Tehran were on television um, and you know, being beamed into people's homes, um, along with like chants of death to America. Um, for the Iranians, um, the history goes back further. It goes back to 1953. Uh, when, you know, you had a democratically elected government um, that was essentially replaced by a coup that was supported by the United States and, uh, you know, the CIA and the United Kingdom um, that reinstalled the Shah and put in place, you know, essentially this dictator who, you know, was quite authoritarian, uh, a close American ally, but quite repressive of the population, uh, and then ruled for another 26 years until he was overthrown, right? So this is why Iran goes back to 1953 and the United States goes back to 1979. Um, and basically since 1979, uh, you've had these tensions uh, on both sides, you know, for for the Islamic Republic uh, and the ruling uh, regime, um, 
you know, anti-Americanism is almost part of, you know, it's part of their ideology, it's part of their politics. Um, while on the U.S. side, um, everything just goes back to those those moments in 79 and that experience. Um, now, I will say that, you know, you've kind of had since then, like moments of potential rapprochement and missed opportunities on both sides through the 80s and, and 90s, numerous moments where one side was ready to re-engage and the other side wasn't, um, and missed opportunities basically until 2015 with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran deal, that I'm sure we'll talk about more in a minute. Um, you know, And at the same time, you've also had, the other thing also you've had is a new generation of Iranians who've grown up after 1979 um, who are quite sympathetic to the United States and you know, appreciate American values and view the United States more positively at least than their parents' generation. Um, and so you have some hope and promise there of a better relationship, but also a lot of continuing challenges. You mentioned the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that the Obama administration negotiated in 2015. And this was a game changer for a lot of reasons. So what was in this deal and why did it garner strong criticism in both the United States and Iran? Well, look, so you know, after years of missed opportunities, uh, in 2013, Iran elects uh, Hassan Rouhani as president. Now, you know, the Iranian governing system is ultimately led by the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei. He's the man in charge, right? But the president is then actually, I wouldn't say democratically elected, because the government chooses who qualifies to run for president. And, you know, you have to basically be in good standing with, you know, the regime to run. Uh, but there is, you know, some ideological diversity within that. And so in 2013, um, Rouhani, who is more of a pragmatic figure, is elected and one who is more interested in cutting a deal with the U.S. And very quickly after that, um, the United States and Iran agreed to what's called the JPOA, the Joint Plan of Action, which, which freezes Iran's nuclear program. Um, and then two years later, you know, with a more permanent agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which actually rolls it back pretty significantly um, you know, and puts in place sort of the... the the system that exists afterwards. Um, now, um, you know, the basic rationale and deal around the JCPOA uh, was that, you know, Iran was pursuing a nuclear program. Um, there was no, there was evidence in the past that it pursued weapons, it had stopped pursuing at least the research associated with creating a nuclear weapon. But it was continuing to build out like its enrichment capability, its ability to build the fissile material, which is like the key component you need for a nuclear weapon, right? You got to, if you're building a nuclear weapon, you kind of have the fissile material, then you need to put it in essentially a bomb device that ignites it. And then you also need to have some kind of delivery vehicle, like a, like a missile. And so they were mostly working on the fissile material, which is the hardest stuff to build, requires the biggest sort of footprint, is the easiest stuff for the intelligence community to to catch, but also, um, you know, is um, something that you, you can make excuses that it's only for domestic purposes. That was really hard to, you know, or for energy purposes, for civilian purposes. Um, and so, you know, the U.S. and Iran come to an agreement where Iran is willing to put significant limitations on its nuclear program um, in exchange for uh, sanctions relief. And, you know, the U.S. had been imposing significant sanctions on Iran, not just the U.S., but the entire, much of the international community. Um, and in exchange for economic relief, 
Iran put in place constraints on its nuclear program that, that would make it very, very hard, if not impossible, for it to um, you know, secretly pursue a nuclear weapon without very quickly being caught. Um, and so that was the, the purpose of the agreement. Now, it was, you know, in my opinion, it was the right thing to do. You know, it wasn't the perfect agreement, but it was it was good. It was good enough. And there is no such thing as a perfect agreement in international relations. Any tough negotiation is going to involve some compromise on both sides. Um, but, you know, the biggest criticisms of the agreement uh, were, one, um, that certain restrictions sunset. You know, they come off after 10 to 15 to 20 years, right? Um, to which my response is, Yes, but the most important restrictions, which have to do with inspections, didn't really sunset. Um, and also, you know, there's lots of agreements in international relations that have sunsets on them. And what you usually tend to do is eventually you cut a new deal, you know, that, to extend. Um, you know, and so the other big critique um, uh, was, you know, that it didn't address any of the other issues associated with Iran, especially Iran's regional behavior. You know, Iran supports various proxy groups across the Middle East, supports, you know, terrorist group like Hezbollah. It's, it's involved in Yemen in supporting the Houthis. Um, it supports Bashar al-Assad in Syria. It supports um, various militia groups in Iraq that have gone after and killed American troops over the years. Um, and so the criti criticism was that if you cut this nuclear agreement and you give Iran all the sanctions relief, they're going to do all these things worse. Um, you know, my, my view of that is, you know, these things do matter and we need a more effective policy to deal with these regional challenges. Um, and there's disagreements there for sure. But for the U.S., the paramount, the most important interest is the nuclear issue. And so you need to have a strategy for both. You need to have a strategy for the region. You need to have a strategy you know, for dealing with missiles. But first and foremost, all those things become worse if Iran gets a nuclear weapon and you need, first and foremost, a strategy for preventing that because the consequences both regionally and for the global like, international nonproliferation regime are just very profound. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this is there is one other reason why there was so much objections and why this was so controversial. Um, and that's because of what we already talked about, the deep animosity and history and negative politics between Iran and the United States. So for, for, a, for a significant portion of opponents, um, no deal would be good enough. You just should not deal with the Islamic Republic, period. Um, and that's a, a, a legitimate perspective. I just think it's kind of impractical in the world where the U.S. has interests. And, you know, um, and unless you're going to basically like overthrow the regime, which I think we've demonstrated in recent years is both very hard to do and incredibly costly, um, you have to find ways to cut practical deals. Yeah, so the JCPOA seems pretty uh, mutually beneficial, yet almost three years ago, the Trump administration announced it was withdrawing the U.S. from the Iran deal. Uh, what was the reasoning behind this decision? Well, I think it was all the reasoning was all the all the things that I described, right, in terms of the criticisms around the regional issues, the criticisms around, you know, um, you know, the sunset provisions and their argument was um, we are going to um, instead institute what they call a maximum pressure campaign. We're going to squeeze the Iranians 100% with sanctions in every which way possible. Uh, and by doing that, we will get more concessions and we will cut a better deal. That was the basic argument. I will say that a big part of it, though, was 
again, the politics of this is something that Donald Trump had promised on the campaign trail, right? I mean, the reality is that most, many, if not all of Trump's advisors in 2018, when he made the decision to withdraw from the JCPOA, were advising him to kind of stay in and try to find ways to improve on it instead of drawing, pulling back, even though most of them had opposed the JCPOA in the first place. They felt now that the agreement was in place, and it wasn't just a deal between the U.S. and Iran. It was a deal between the U.S., Iran, and other world powers, right? France, the U.K., Germany, China, Russia. Um, because of that, their view was we should try to execute it as best as possible instead of alienating all these partners. But Trump ultimately was the decision maker. He decided against it. Um, and so you started pursuing this maximum pressure campaign. Um, and... Look, I think what the Trump administration demonstrated was we can really apply a lot of economic pressure. They really did single-handedly, in opposition to much of the rest of the world, really squeeze Iran with sanctions. And it turned out that all these European companies and Asian companies that you know their governments wanted them to keep doing business with Iran because they wanted to preserve the JCPOA, um, but... Um, these companies just weren't interested in doing that and risking losing access to the American market. So they caused a lot of economic damage. But the problem was the Trump strategy never actually changed Iranian behavior in any way um, or got Iran to make concessions. Because if you're going to try to deal with somebody, you don't just want to have leverage over them. You actually have to have a partner on the other side willing to do a deal. And I think the Iranians were so alienated um, by you know, the fact that like Trump walked away from the agreement, that they wouldn't deal with him. Um, and on top of that, you know, despite the economic pressure, you know, Iran found most of the rest of the world sort of taking Iran's side, or at least not taking the U.S.'s side and being pretty careful on how they hedged, you know, on the JCPOA, including America's closest European partners, you know, who just disagreed with the United States and with the Trump administration on this. So Iran found itself economically isolated, but not diplomatically isolated. And because of that, I don't think they felt the pressure to make big changes. Um, you know, the one other interesting thing I'll say about this, though, is um, it was a lot of heroic diplomacy, especially by European states, um, who were kind of stuck between a very aggressive Trump administration and Iran. And Iran wanted the Europeans to do all kinds of other things economically for them that the Europeans were just not able to deliver on. You know, the Trump administration was constantly going after the Europeans for not doing more to pressure Iran. The reality is the Europeans did a lot to just buy time for like three years, um, try to preserve what they could of the JCPOA. Um, and the Iranians also were ultimately interested in, in kind of, you know, preserving the JCPOA or not walking away altogether and leaving the option open. So with all those things, I mean, here we are now in 2021 and look, it's a, we're still in a tough, complicated situation, but the JCPOA isn't completely dead. And that was because of a lot of sort of active diplomacy to try to keep it on life support during these past three years. And that brings us to today, where we have a new leader. Because a month ago, President Joe Biden was inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. And we still have Iran's activities in the Middle East being some of the most pressing foreign policy challenges that the U.S. is facing. So to that end, what do we know about how President Biden might approach Iran in this new administration? Sure. Um, well, look, President Biden has said he would return to the JCPOA. He campaigned on that for the past two years, um, sort of a mutual 
you know, U.S. Iran return to the JCPOA. Um, he also said that he wants to, you know, after returning to the agreement, make it longer and stronger. Um, in other words, um, he wants to deal with the sunset provisions and also start addressing other regional issues. You're not going to address other regional issues through some big, like one deal. You're going to need almost an entire separate diplomatic process parallel to start working on some of these regional challenges. Um, so that's what he's committed to doing and wants to do. Now, he's only been in office you know, less than a month. Um, they're still getting their team together. It's still very complicated. There's, he's still like in the middle of a global pandemic um, you know, with a major economic crisis and all these other issues to deal with. Um, and so it's taking them a little time to line up everything. Um, but at the same time, you also have a very narrow window in Iran because Iran has presidential elections coming up in June, um, where you might have a more sort of hardline government come to power in the end of Rouhani. Um, so, you know, I think many commentators feel like you need to make some progress between now and June, um, you know, and so um, that puts that puts all sides under some pretty intense pressure. Uh, and frankly, the early Iranian responses, you know, have not been great. I think they were hoping or expecting that things would magically move on, on day one with Biden, and they really haven't. And so now the Iranians have gotten a little frustrated a bit by that, and they're sort of starting to take some dangerous escalatory steps of their own. Um, you know, they're pu pulling back further on cooperation, you know, on on the, the nuclear agreement. Um, and with things like inspections, there's a, you know, next week, there's a big moment where they might pull back on some of their cooperation on inspections, which would be a huge problem. They you know, you recently had an attack in Erbil in Iraq um, by what appear to be, you know, Iranian supported militias on a on a U.S. target. So, you know, this escalation kind of continues, um, you know, both sides are looking at the other saying, you go first. Um, and, you know, I hope that is all just early posturing. And as things move on, they find a way back um, to the agreement over the next few months, ideally. Um but um, we'll have to wait and see. You just talked about earlier how the status of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action is on life support. Could you talk a little bit more about that? And do you expect President Biden to rejoin the agreement or perhaps attempt to renegotiate aspects of it? Sure. So, um, so basically, right, we were implementing the agreement until 2018 where the U.S. stepped aside. And the basic deal was sanctions relief for nuclear constraints, Right. So when President Trump announced we were leaving, we imposed a lot of sanctions. You know, economy got really tough for the Iranians. They spent a year continuing to abide by the agreement, um, uh, hoping that they could sort of pull Europe and other parts of the world away from the U.S. and isolate the U.S. diplomatically and, and get some economic benefits. They were able to get, you know, sort of these diplomatic sort of, they succeeded politically, but they failed economically. They weren't able to get economic benefits out of the rest of the world because the world was just to invest in the United States market. Um, and so in you know, mid-2019, in the spring of 2019, the Iranians start to slowly violate the nuclear agreement, start taking steps to increase their you know, uranium production, increase like number of centrifuges. Also, like things start happening like mysterious explosions in the Strait of Hormuz, on oil tankers, like missile attacks on Saudi oil facilities in September. Um, a major escalation in early 2021, uh, 2020, um, where, you know, Iran kills uh, 
you know, um, or Iranian-supported militias kill a, an American in Iraq. Um, the U.S. responds. There's an escalatory sort of exchange that eventually ends in the U.S. killing Qasem Soleimani, you know, the head of the Quds Force, um, uh, you know, and Iran launching ballistic missiles at American bases in Iraq in retaliation. I mean, Soleimani being maybe Iran's most important military leader. I mean, if you remember, about a year ago, we were we almost went to war. I mean, it was a major moment. Um, and so, um, you know, that's where we are coming into early 2021. Um, and the thing is, especially in, this, in November, um, there's the assassination of Mohassan Fakhrizadeh, who is sort of the leading Iranian scientist in their nuclear program. And then the Iranian parliament passes legislation that involves all kinds of steps uh, that it will take in the next couple months if there isn't progress on negotiations or a return to the JCPOA. Um, and one of those big deadlines is coming up next week, February 23rd, um, where if you know we don't see progress, we are very likely to see Iran start taking steps outside of the what's called the additional protocol. Basically, start to curve back. You know, there's different parts of the JCPOA, right? Like a lot of it is about Iran reducing how many like the the capacity to make nuclear weapons, right? Or or the capacity to make like uh, um, fissile material. But a big part of it is inspections. Inspections are the most important thing. The nuclear experts will tell you the ability to get all over the country and see what's going on and have eyes on the ground. Because like the, the worry is less that Iran uses existing facilities, um, which are all like being monitored, but more that it creates a secret facility somewhere and uses it to go to a nuclear weapon. And that's why inspections really help you, you know, avoid that. So um, that's a big step Iran might take next week. Um, and so that's where we really are starting to teeter here. Um, in terms of like whether like where the JCPOA is now, you know, President Biden has said he wants to go back in, um, and I think he does. I think that's been his policy. Um, I don't think the administration is going to be rushed. I don't think they appreciate being threatened this way by Iran or feeling like Iran's acting more provocatively and escalatory towards them than they did towards Trump. Um, so I think the Iranians are, are kind of miscalculating here, uh, if you ask me. Um, and I don't think that 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 President Biden's going to try to renegotiate the nuclear agreement right now. I think what he has said all along is, first, we have to go back in. Then we can look into the future and see what additions can be made. You know, basically, he likes to say longer and stronger, right? What additions can be made, what steps can uh, happen, um, uh, you know, in terms of like de-escalating regional challenges and looking at Iran's missile program, all these other things that he wants to deal with. But I think there's a recognition in the administration that the way to do that is first to go back to the JCPOA and then start to build on all these other issues. Great. So kind of shifting our focus to domestic politics, there seems to be a lot happening over the next year. And as the Iranian 2021 presidential election approaches in June, who are the main candidates and what do and how do we expect Iran's foreign policy, especially towards the U.S., to change? Um, so um, it's hard to, uh, you know, the, the elections in, in Iran are not like the elections here where like the election season plays out over two years. It's like much sort of smaller, more compressed time frame. So there are candidates, but it's that that's not really 100% solid yet. It hasn't emerged on like who the main candidates are going to be. Um, but I do think you have 
kind of multiple factions, and it's worth talking about the factions and where they stand, right? Um, you kind of have the radicals led by like, you know, you know, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and sort of like the extreme sort of, I mean, or like he was the former president. He's not going to run again. But he's kind of like in a weird, interesting place all by himself. You have what I would say are like what are called the principalists, which are really the, the conservatives, like the hardline conservatives who are part of the system, um, who right now it appears are in the best position to win. Um, you know, and because, you know, they are running against really the pragmatists, which is Ruhan, like Hassan Rouhani, you know, his foreign minister, Javad Zarif. Rouhani is termed out, so we'll see who, who they put up. But the reality is, like, Rouhani's entire legacy is built up in the JCPOA, and the fact that the JCPOA has failed, um, you know, uh, or at least that the U.S. has walked away from it, has really hurt his legacy and the capacity of the, the pragmatists. Um, you also have the reformers who are, I think are even more sort of moderate than, than Rouhani in that camp. Um, but they are less, so far they've kind of aligned themselves with, with Rouhani um, and frankly are less influential and less have like less um, momentum these days. Um, you know, but the challenge in all this is that, you know, there is kind of agreement from, from broad swaths of, the, of this political spectrum um, to go back to the JCPOA if the opportunity exists and the U.S. goes back in. But there's also a difference in like who wants the credit, right, and how that all plays out. So, you know, Rouhani's opponents don't really want a big return to the JCPOA uh, before, you know, the election in June um, because like then he gets all the credit and potentially that puts a bunch of like wind in the sails of the pragmatists and reformers, um, you know, um, but they're not fully opposed overall to dealing with the U.S. But on the other hand, they will take a harder line. And they're also, you know, Rouhani and his team are incredibly sort of, you know, capable and professional. Most of them have like a lot of international experience and diplomacy. Um, that is not as true of the harder line elements inside of Iran who might be running the country after June. Um, and so that's another reason to try to get a deal done with Rouhani and his team right now, especially since, you know, the Biden team has a long history with them. Um, and so this is also going to be a challenge. So you have all these different kind of conflicting political dynamics, which are going to make the situation, I think, more complex as we move forward. Yeah. And another big challenge in Iran has been COVID-19. And Iran was hit pretty badly by the pandemic last year. At the same time, the U.S. decided to maintain their sanctions on the regime, preventing some medications and life-saving equipment from entering the country. Who do Iranians really blame for the outbreak? And could it really impact the politics of the 2021 election? I don't know how the co how COVID plays into 2021 elections in Iran. Um, I mean, I think ultimately the concern there is more with the Iranian government than it is with the United States. But I do think that this sort of maximum pressure campaign of the last few years, right, all these sanctions, and especially not even granting humanitarian exceptions for COVID, um, has had an impact of how the Iranian public thinks about the United States, right? Remember, I talked before about how there's large swaths of the Iranian public, the majority of the Iranian public is pretty sympathetic to the United States, um, you know, and grew up post-revolution and sees the sort of positive elements of American democracy and culture. 
Um, but the last four years have left a really profound sour taste in the mouths of, you know, the population, um, especially when you see the U.S. not even willing to wait, you know, allow waivers to allow Iranians to buy medicine and vaccines and things like that. So um, that I think will do has done some permanent kind of damage to the perception of the United States by the Iranian public. That's not who makes the ultimate decisions in Iran, but I think it does matter. Um, and yes, Iran has dealt with a very tough um, sort of COVID-19 outbreak over the past year. Um, I do wonder if, you know, this is an area where I would hope you could have some cooperation going forward. You know, I mean, maybe a Biden administration can early on, you know, do some sanctions relief around COVID-19, which uh, President Biden promised as a candidate. Um, maybe, you know, you can have some cooperation between Iran and some of its neighbors who it has tensions with, especially with the Gulf states, um, as part of, you know, on this common shared challenge of COVID-19. Um, so, you know, it's it's been obviously a terrible tragedy, um, but, you know, maybe it can create, you know, opportunity for at least for greater regional sort of cooperation. Prior to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, Iran was convulsed by its largest uprising since the Islamic Republic was established in 1979 at the end of 2019. What were the people protesting during this uprising, and do you think there are long-term effects of it that can affect June's election and even beyond that? Sure. Well, look, I mean, and I'm not 100% sure if the uprising we saw in 2019 was bigger than the Green Revolution in 2009. Um, different different dynamics though one was more led by the elite and the other one this last one really was led by sort of you know local population and like and sort of you know people all over the country um you know um but um you know that uprising fundamentally is about like corruption in the system right and frustration that the public has with you know economic corruption in the system with a lack of opportunity with a lack of jobs with a repressive you know government um, and this is the challenge that, you know, all sort of sclerotic uh, sort of um, authoritarian regimes face and something we've seen all over the Middle East, you know, over the last, you know, 10 years. Um, you have governments that aren't responsive to their people um, and, the, and with, with economies that aren't working. Um, and it wasn't just the sanctions that created this. It really was like poorly run economies, um, you know, um, the challenge is that, you know, the Iranian state still has a very effective security apparatus and is very good at repressing its population when it needs to be and is not afraid to use violence if it must. And like those really are the things that keep, you know, a regime in power, right? When you really have, when you get to the point of revolution, oftentimes one of the key parameters there is when the military stops being willing to fight and shoot on the population. Um, and I don't think we're that close to that in Iran right now. So I think certainly I would like to see an Iran with more human rights and Iran with greater freedom. You know, I mean, that'd be wonderful. Um, and certainly I think that's what many Iranian people want. Um, I'm just skeptical about how close we are to that, given the, the power of of their regime right now. But the other thing to just remember about these situations is you never know. I mean, it's impossible to, it's nearly impossible to predict these things. You can say in the long run, this won't work out or, or the system can't last, but it doesn't really help you today or tomorrow. It doesn't even help you in the moment of crisis, right? I mean, as we saw during the Arab Spring, you know, we, we 
had all these governments that were on the tipping point and you can never quite tell if they were going to fall over or not or what might follow. Um, and so, you know, I really believe our policy towards Iran, of course, we should be supporting human rights. Of course, we should be supporting democracy. But, you know, we have real national security interests associated with Iran, especially with its pursuit of its nuclear weapons and also with its behavior across the Middle East. And so um, we need to sort of base our strategies and policies first and foremost uh, on those, not on a, a hope for some kind of reform that may or may not happen. And so we'd we often like to end our podcast by kind of looking towards the future. Um, having said that, what is your outlook on the future of U.S.-Iran relations? And if tensions continue to increase, is open conflict between the U.S. and Iran likely? And how about Iran and Israel? Sure. So look, I, I think we are at a pivotal moment over the next few months. Um, I think it's important for the Biden administration and Iran to try to come to some kind of an agreement whether that's a return to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or maybe, maybe like that's too complicated, and you do something smaller than that first, then eventually return to the JCPOA, but something to like de-escalate the tensions and turn around what has been like a really escalatory last you know a few years, um, and put this problem a bit in a box. Uh, and so that's what I would hope to see between now and in the June elections, or if or between now and August when the new government takes office, or after. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like sooner the better. But obviously, you know, it depends on where Iran is and where the U.S. is. And I think some of the steps Iran's taking right now, I think to try to pressure the Biden administration, like may backfire. So I think they'd be smarter being a little more restrained. Um, so that's where I hope things go. Um, you know, if they don't go that way, I don't think we're on the verge of of all-out war. I think what we've demonstrated, and this is true both with Israel and Iran and the United States and Iran, is that you know we can fight these shadow wars for a long time um, and come close to a you know conflict while avoiding it. We got really close last year to a conflict uh, as a result of the killing of Soleimani, but we managed to avoid it. And thus far, we've managed to avoid for years now, getting into an all-out war while continuing at this low level. And that's been true of the Israelis too. They've hit 1,000 Iranian targets inside Syria over the last few years, and they've managed to do it without escalating an all-out war. And so I'm optimistic that we can avoid an all-out conflict, even if things remain tense. But what I would prefer to see is de-escalation, uh, first by returning to the nuclear agreement, and then by looking for ways to cut deals in the region and on other issues to start to reduce tensions and decrease the likelihood of conflict. Because um, I think that would just be better for U.S. interests, for Iranian interests, you know, for, for the Iranian people and for the American people. That's great. Thank you very much uh, for your insight today. We're glad you joined us today. Sure. Happy to do it. And uh, good luck with, uh, with this. So send it to me when it's out. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.